Alrighty. We continue our study through Revelation, and we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up at verse 2. And we're in the second section of Revelation. Now, how many main sections are there in the book of Revelation? How is it broken up? The outline of the book is chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1 is the things that John has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are, which is the current age we're living in, the church age, before Jesus comes back. And the third section is the things which will take place after this, which we know as Metatelta, after these things, which starts with the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, the thousand year rule and reign, the great white throne judgment, and finally the new heavens and the new earth. So we're in the second section now, we're in the church age. And we're studying seven messages or letters given by Jesus himself to seven churches or seven specific churches, and they're all located in a region in the country of Turkey, what was called Asia. It's written to a specific church, but as we're going to find out later, it's for all of us. Jesus gives this command, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even though these letters are addressed to a particular church, they're for everybody. And we need to listen to what they say. So there's four parts to each letter, which kind of helps us to understand it. The first part is that Jesus finds something good to say about the churches. The second part, Jesus corrects something they're doing wrong. Third, an encouragement to persevere. And finally, each of the churches reveals something about the nature or character of Christ. And not all churches have all parts, but we'll find out that as we go. So let's pray, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for these letters which really show our heart, Lord, especially this morning. It shows one of the dangers of being a Christian, that is we can drift away, we can leave our first love. And so I just pray that you help us to understand that and to be aware of what we can do to prevent ourselves from drifting away and walking away. And also what to do when we do. So when we do drift away, we can repent, we can come back. So help us to learn these things and apply them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just going to read the first seven verses of chapter 2. So it's Revelation chapter 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which in the midst of the paradise of God. So, I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. Now, we covered 
the bit about testing the false apostles and false prophets last week, but I just want to touch on it a little bit this week. He's affirming them for staying on task, for working hard, for not giving up. And he's also affirming them or commending them because they have stood with and protected the truth. Okay, They have good doctrine. So again, this was covered in depth last week, so this is just a, a quick reminder. So last week we looked at what the Bible says about false prophets. This is an important topic. Why? Because today there are many false prophets. Okay, And they go around deceiving many people, just like the Bible said they would. Fancy that. Amazing the Bible knew what was going to happen before it happened, yeah? Revelation chapter 2 verse 2, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So a really great scripture in the New Testament for this is 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. It says, These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So the false converts, the false teachers and false prophets, they all look like a real, genuine Christian. They sound like a Christian. They speak like a Christian. They sing like a Christian. (laughs) Yeah? But their message is from Satan. They are sent from Satan. He is our enemy. That's what his name means. What does Satan want to do to us? John, he says he wants to kill, steal, and destroy, and he is the father of lies. Okay. He wants to trick as many people as he can to spend eternity with him in the lake of fire, or as some people call it, hell. That's his end goal. That's his purpose in life. He's a really evil angel. If he can't do that, if someone does get saved, then his next thing is to do his best to destroy the life of that Christian by making them ineffective in sharing the gospel and robbing them of the joy of loving, obeying, and abiding with God. He'll try and trip them up with all this false doctrine and with living a life that is focused on themselves or other things, but just not on God. So if these false prophets and false teachers are so cleverly disguised, how do we know who is a fake and who is true? Well, as we learnt last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's message. Jesus said we will know them by their fruit, both the false doctrine they teach and their greedy and evil way of life. And why are they so dangerous? Again, as we learnt last week, even though the false prophets and false teachers talk about God, their lies prevent people from entering the kingdom of God or being saved or born again. And they also hinder or prevent those who are saved from maturing in their faith. And it's no wonder that God is so angry with them. And the scriptures we read last week really powerfully portray God's feeling towards these guys who try and keep people out of the kingdom. So that's it for the false prophets for today. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So from outward appearances, this church looks really good. It's a solid church that worked hard, had good outreach, 
and it protected the integrity or truth of the gospel. But keep in mind what was happening to these people, what life was like for them. They were being hunted down, killed and persecuted for their faith because they lived in the evil Roman Empire, which forced people to worship the emperor as king. Yet they were faithful to continue to be obedient to God and the work that he had given them to do, even if it meant death. So these people, they gave up a lot to be a Christian. They gave up a lot to serve Christ. Now, it's so easy to give up, to quit, to compromise, to take the easy way out when things get hard. But we're not in the Roman Empire now, so how does this apply to us? We're not going to be thrown in jail because we're reading a Bible. Well, today we have different challenges. We live in an evil world which is always trying to make us turn away from God. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples so you can hopefully understand this. And these are examples which are very relevant for today, for people living in today's society, today's culture. So first, the Bible says that Christians should marry only Christians and that we should wait until we're properly married until we have sex. What happens if you are a Christian and you are friends with someone who isn't a Christian? Now, this person might seem really nice. But typically, what happens today, they'll ask you to sleep with him. Now, although it's difficult, we must say something like, no, I can't sleep with you because the Bible says that two people must be properly married before they have sex. Also, I can't marry you because I'm a Christian and I must be obedient to what God wants me to do. The Bible clearly commands that a Christian must only marry another Christian of the opposite sex. Therefore, I can't sleep with you, move in with you, or marry you. This is being obedient to God and means being faithful to God to persevere. So the trials that we go through today are mainly temptation in this world. We're not struggling against a government that's trying to throw us in jail, but we're struggling against the TV, the movies, the internet, the, all those things, all those voices that are trying to get us to pull away from God, to move away from God, to compromise, to be disobedient. So ladies, will you be faithful to wait and keep yourself for the godly man that God has chosen just for you? Gentlemen, will you be faithful to wait and keep yourself pure for the godly woman that God has chosen just for you? Will you trust God enough to obey Him? Will you persevere in your obedience to Him? Will you be able to say to the pressure that this world puts on you with its evil movies, music, TV and social media, etc. to disobey? Will you persevere in your obedience to God or will you quit and go the way of the world? And this, I believe, is the greatest challenge, the greatest thing that we have to face in this modern age where anything goes. Another example, and this is talking about our families and having to break away from our families. Remember what the Bible says? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. But this applies to God calling us to our individual ministries as well, even if we're not married. So the second example is, what would you do if God called you to go and live in Kalgoorlie and work in a church there, helping feed the poor people and giving the homeless somewhere to live? Your family thinks you're crazy and gives you a really hard time. They tell you that you don't care about them. They say, you don't care about us. You're leaving us. You're deserting us. 
And they threaten that if you go to Kalgoorlie and you work there, we're going to cut you off. What will you do? Will you be faithful to what God has called you to do or will you quit and go back home to your family? Will you demonstrate patience and endurance? Be willing to suffer as you continue to do the work that God has called you to do? Will you make Jesus more important in your life than your family? And again, being obedient to God is what it means to be faithful to God, to persevere, to not give up and not to quit. So the Bible says that for those who overcome the trials, there is the crown of life. The crown of life for those who overcome. Now I've got a couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So to abound means to go over and above what we need to do, to do more and more, to have an abundance of good works. We should abound in the work of the Lord because there is great reward if we don't give up. It's never for nothing. Loving and serving God is always worth it, even if it's difficult at the time. Now, I'm going to show you this verse, and it's going to marry into what we're reading in Revelation. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. And it's Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So let's just have a look at this. The words work, labor, and patience are the same as they are in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. So in Thessalonians, a work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says to the church there, I know your works, your labor, and your patience. So what's missing? We're missing the faith, we're missing the love, and we're missing the hope. They have work, but it's not a work of faith. They have labor, but it's not a labor of love. And they have patience, but it's not a patience of hope. So you can see how things have changed over roughly 40, 50 years. Overall, the church at that time, and especially the church of Ephesus, they were not living by faith, not motivated by love, and had lost their hope of Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. And we'll see how that happens shortly. Now Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15, 14, For the something of Christ compels us. What is it? It's for the love of Christ compels us. All right, we're going to come back to that later. For the love of Christ compels us. Now, in the sight of our God and Father, remember that God is always watching and he will never, this is not in a bad sense, that he will never forget the good things you do because of your love for him. There will be a rich reward for you in heaven and you will experience an abundant, joy-filled life right now, no matter what your circumstances. So God has done so much for each of us, demonstrating his love for us when Jesus died on the cross in our place. Jesus willingly suffered for me as he obeyed the Father. So will I be willing to suffer for him as I obey the Father? So in the sight of our God and Father, we want to be obedient because of what he's done for us. And moving on to verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. 
So we've already got a hint about this, what the, the change in their, the heart condition is. And here is the correction. And it doesn't say you have lost your first love. It's not like they've misplaced it and they can't find it again. No, they've left it. If you've left something, you can go back to it. You know where it is. And leaving something is a choice of your will. It's a decision that you make by yourself, by your own will. It's a decision to change our focus, to change our priorities. Jesus is no longer number one in our lives. He is no longer our first love, our first priority, what we focus our affections on. So there's three things to notice in this verse. Firstly, left your first love. So does this mean their love for God? Their love for the fellow Christians in the church? Or both? It's both. Because if you love God, you will automatically love other people because His Holy Spirit is flowing through you and empowering you to do that. If you're abiding in Him, you will bear fruit. It's a promise. And if you're not loving your church family, then also you can't be loving God because it says if you're not loving your brother, then you're not loving the Father either. So you can't love his family without loving him first. Now, here's another point. The Ephesian church was a working church. Now, sometimes a focus on working for Jesus will become more important than a love relationship with Jesus. And we can put what we do for Jesus above or before who we are in him. In other words, we find our identity in what we do rather than who we are. And I find that for me is a pretty major thing. Is You get so caught up in talking to people and, and preparing and all that kind of thing for Bible studies and whatever. And that can become more important than the actual relationship, the friendship with God. And it's something you have to really watch out for. There's churches out there I've seen who are really works-focused and they've really lost their love for the Lord. And that can happen to us too, so be careful. Now, the Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. Now, I've got a couple of quotes here. One from David Guzik. It says, Sometimes a focus, notice the word focus there, if that's your primary focus, on doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, and intolerant of diversity. So if you're really focusing and you're not nitpicky about things, this is what can happen. And Charles Spurgeon says, When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse, a powerless formalism. Adhesion to the truth sours into bigotry when the sweetness and light of love to Jesus depart. Old language, but you get the message. So basically the way I see it is this. You've got truth and love in the middle. And it's like a very difficult place to stay on this like mountain peak. You can fall down one side, which is legalism, where you focus on being right, or you fall down the other side where you focus on love and you end up getting messed up because you're making so many mistakes and getting messed up in false doctrine. So you want the balance of love and doctrine. You want the good doctrine and you want the love without falling either side. So we should always seek to know what is right and wrong and understand what the correct Bible doctrine is because bad doctrine leads to wrong motives, bad behavior, and stunted spiritual growth. It destroys people. However, without love, that knowledge about doctrine becomes a weapon to judge others and pull them down. But what should happen is that knowledge of good doctrine 
when used in love, builds people up. And we must speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. So, the application for us today, what is described here in the Church of Ephesus is a slow fade. And there's a song called Slow Fade. Where they continued to do the right thing, but increasingly with the wrong motive. Does that make sense? They're doing the right thing, but increasingly with the wrong motive. And this can be true for us as well. We may hardly notice a change. And in fact, sometimes we don't notice a change. And that's a scary thing. Sometimes other people will notice a change in us before we notice it ourselves. It's the intrusion of another love. But gradually our zeal, our enthusiasm wanes or dies, and we are motivated less and less by a love and appreciation for what Christ has already done for us. So the joy of the Lord has ceased to be our strength. We are no longer walking in the power of the Spirit. Our Christian walk becomes a grudging obligation, something we have to do instead of something we want to do. We only serve because we made a commitment and we don't want to look foolish by quitting. That's our reputation. Or others make us feel condemned if we stop. It's legalism. So I'm going to use an example of a marriage relationship to help us understand what can happen in the spiritual. So I made up this man called Henry. He's a happily married man. We're going to, as I said, call him Henry, and his wife's name is Jane, all right? Now, Henry loves his wife, Jane, and he's not interested in any other woman. He buys her flowers. He always comes home on time to eat dinner with her. He loves talking things over with her, and they have no secrets. Great marriage. But then he has offered a promotion at work. He decides to take the job. But the work is harder. The hours are longer. And the boss seems to always ask him to stay back and do more work. Now, at first, Henry only stays back at work one day a week. They can handle that. But then, a few weeks later, he's two nights a week. And then another month later, it's three nights a week. And then a few more months later, it's four nights a week. And finally, it's every night of the week. He's staying back because he's got all this work. So date nights get put off and then cancelled. He and Jane don't eat dinner much together anymore. They don't talk as much. He is always tired, stressed, and preoccupied with his work. All Henry talks about is his work. All Henry thinks about is his work. He's not interested in how his wife is feeling anymore. Buying flowers for his wife Jane becomes something he does not because he wants to, but because he thinks he has to. He tells her he loves her less and less, and then stops telling her at all. He gradually stops sharing his deepest feelings with her. He continues to grow distant from her. So that's a picture of a slow fade, where a husband is losing his wife, uh, he's losing his love for his wife. Now, so far there is nothing externally different in their relationship. He's still faithful to his wife. He still buys her flowers. He's still in the house, still looking after her. But the fire in his heart, the love and affection he has for his wife has grown cold. He has slowly been leaving his original first love, his wife. And now his heart has left his first love. His first love is now his work. Work is now more important than his wife. It's what he puts all his time, energy and affections into. His priorities have changed. So, again, slowly but surely, Henry's work has replaced his wife as his first love. And this is where the church of Ephesus was at when Jesus gave them this message. They were still acting like they loved God. 
but their hearts were cold toward God. Their love had grown cold. So the new first love, I don't know what it was. It could have been helping the homeless or making money or sports or family or, or some sin or even studying the Bible just so they could learn more about doctrines. The idol could be anything or anyone. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. But what matters is that they love someone or something more than they love God. Something had taken that place of first in their hearts, in that church. And the Bible says that anything that is more important than God in our lives is an idol. Someone or something was now more important than God. They had left their first love and were worshipping an idol in their hearts. Verse 5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So this is a serious warning. Jesus is saying to this church that works hard, that doesn't quit, that seeks the truth, that tests the false prophets, that he will cause them to cease from being a church. And for me, this is the most severe consequence he gives to any of the seven churches. So remember the lampstand represents the church, chapter 1 verse 20. And Jesus is saying he will cause their church to cease to exist if they don't repent. Now they can exist as an organization, but they won't be working in the kingdom as such. They won't have the Holy Spirit flowing through them. So why is Jesus giving such a harsh or severe consequence to this church? Well, let's go back to Henry. I want to continue this example. It's been now two years since Henry accepted the promotion and started working back after work more and more. Henry becomes lonely and starts talking to his young single secretary about personal things. He starts to become infatuated with her. It ends in an affair. He separates from his wife. He tells his wife he just doesn't love her anymore. Henry's friends and family wonder what could have happened to him. What had changed? How could he have hurt his wife so badly when he used to love her so much? They just can't understand. Everything looks so good and normal from the outside. So let's just step back a bit and analyze this, right? When Henry first took the promotion, was he thinking, you know what, I'd really love to have an affair with my secretary and separate from my wife? You think he was thinking that? No, of course not. Did Henry consciously think, I would like to grow distant from my wife and become obsessed with work? No, of course not. Did his love for his wife grow cold in a day or over months or years? It's over the years, isn't it? Or it could be months too. Do you think Henry was aware of the growing distance between him and his wife? And that's the problem. Most of the time we don't know, we don't understand, we don't realize. Now, do you think Henry's friends and family may have thought something like, this is incredible, how a man who loved his wife one day could the next day just not love her anymore? Do you think they would have thought that? Most likely, because they would have seen everything You know, Henry's still treating his wife well. He's bought her a nice car. She's got nice clothes. The house is nice. It looks like a beautiful marriage externally. But his heart has been elsewhere. He's loveless. So just come back quickly to verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So the application for us is that the same is true with our relationship with God. It's so easy for other things to gradually and subtly crowd out our time with God. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. It's never intended. 
but it happens nonetheless. Our labor of love becomes just labor. We find ourselves just going through the motions with our relationship with God. So again, it's so easy for other things to gradually and subtly crowd out our time with God. Now, where does a slow fade usually start? Where does this compromise usually start? It's in our devotions. It's in our Bible reading. It's the special time of the day that we set aside to spend time with God. It could be that I stay up late watching a movie or looking stuff up on the internet or talking on the phone, and then I'm too tired the next day to read the Bible. Or someone says, let's go to the beach, surf's up, you know, awesome waves this morning. Or it could be, oh no, I forgot to prepare that lesson for my class today. It could be anything that Satan will throw at you to try and stop you from spending time with God. Now, once you miss reading once, it's always easier to miss the second time. And then it gets easier and easier and easier. And it's like Henry. Once he started missing dinner with his wife just one day a week, then it wasn't too hard to start missing two days a week, and then three, and then four, and then five, and then not at all. Now, being a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, means being disciplined. We must make our time with God the most important part of our day. Now, this is not about tisk tisk tisk, you know, naughty, naughty, naughty. If you want to be a good Christian, you must follow these rules. You must read your Bible for 30 minutes each day. After 30 minutes, close it up. You can don't read anymore. <laughs> because if you don't, God won't love you anymore and he'll smack you on the bottom of the big stick. No, it's not like that. So what should our motivation be? Well, here's my answer. My Savior loves me. He died for me. And right now, he's eagerly waiting for me to talk to him in prayer. And he wants to speak to me as I read his love letter to me, the Bible. He wants to fill me with his love, peace, and joy as I choose to follow and obey him. He wants to lead me and guide me into blessings and opportunities that will grow me and help me. He is my best friend. He provides all my needs. He gives me strength to overcome sin. He fills me with hope. He takes away my shame, the shame of my past and the present. He gives me a future and a hope. He wants me to obey him so he can share his love with me, so I can abide with him. In Jesus, I experience complete satisfaction. Now, given all this, why would anyone not want to spend time with God each morning? To commune with him throughout the day. Now, it's not, I got to, it's, wow, I get to. Okay, that's the thing. So how do we protect our relationship with God? How do we stop this from happening? Because it can happen so easily. Well, first we need to be aware of Satan's game plan. He's always trying to distract us and divert our attention from spending time with God in prayer and reading the Bible and fellowshipping with other believers. Why? Because Satan is trying to steal our affections. So we need to be aware of Satan's tactics, his schemes, his ways of keeping us from enjoying our love relationship with God. It's like playing football. The other team will do anything they can to stop you from kicking a goal. Does that make sense? The other team, Satan, is doing anything he can to stop you from having a quiet time. You need to be smart and you need to be focused if you're going to win. Now I want to just look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It's a very important verse as far as this 
concept of guarding our hearts, guarding our affections. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And from the Amplified Version it says, Keep and guard your heart with all vigilance, and above all that you guard, for out of it flow the springs of life. So what this means is that we need to be aware of who or what we give our affections to. This means what has become our first priority, our focus. And we can only love one thing or one person most at one time. And we need to examine ourselves and see where our affections lie, what we are most concerned about, what we are thinking about most. So we need to honestly analyze our decisions about how we use the time God has given us. We need to be honest about what is most important in our lives. And Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or riches. So the key here is that what is most important to us is what we give ourselves to, is what we put all our effort into, is what we give our affections to, what we're going to be loyal to. If I decide I make a conscious choice to make God the most important part of my life, then I will want to serve him, I will want to obey him, and it will come naturally. But if God is not the most important part of my life, and other things will be more important, because whatever is most important in my life, that will have its own priorities and its own things to do. And I will find it difficult to do what God wants me to do because my heart is focused on something else. My affections are somewhere else. So it's all about my affections. It's who or what I choose to love. See, love is not an emotion. Do you realize that? Love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. Christ didn't demonstrate emotion on the cross. He demonstrated love. He demonstrated a choice to lay down his life, to prefer us over himself. So I can choose to love my phone, my friends, my family, drugs, alcohol, pornography, or anything else more than God, even ministry. However, if I choose to love God and make him number one in my life, then I will make the decision to study the Bible to learn more about who God is every day. Now, why will I make this decision, or why should I? To make this decision to read the Bible and pray each day if I'm going to make God number one? Well, it's like this. As I read the Bible and pray, I grow in my understanding of how awesome and loving God is as he reveals himself to me. Then, as I grow in my understanding of God, I grow in my love for God. Then, as I love God more, I want to obey God more. Then, as I obey God more, I abide with God more. I'm at home with him. We're agreeing together, walking in step. Then, as I abide in Christ, I bear fruit. I experience the glorious work and power of the Holy Spirit living in me and working through me as I love others like I've never been able to love them before. And this brings much glory to God. So again, where does it all start? It's not by trying to be obedient. It's not by trying to love people. It's getting into the Word of God because that will produce all those other things. So how does Satan most often attack us? Well, he knows this truth that we need to be in the Word. We need to be reading the Word for the purpose of knowing Jesus, of 
developing our relationship with him. So Satan's attack is distracting us and keeping us from reading the Bible, prayer, and fellowship with other believers. So why? Because if I don't read the Bible as much, I won't know God as much, which means I won't love him as much, which means I won't obey him as much, which means I won't abide with him as much, which means I won't bear as much fruit, which means the Holy Spirit is not working in me and through me as much, and I won't experience his love, joy, and peace in my life like I was before. You see how it all flows on? So let's come back to our question, why was Jesus so severe in his consequences for the church? And he says in verse 5, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Why is leaving our first love so bad that Jesus says he removed the lampstand? We might have lots of programs and lots of activities. We might have doctrinal purity. But Jesus will not stay in a church where there is not true love because without love, you have nothing. And the verse for that is 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had faith, such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So the answer is, it's all about love. Why is it about love? Because that's what God created us for. It's about relationship. There's three things that are important to God. It's relationship. Number two is relationship. And number three is relationship. (laughs) Jesus had a reason for dying for us and making us perfect again. The primary goal, his primary goal, is to unite us back with him so we could be friends with him again. It was so we could be adopted back into his family again. It's always been about relationship. A verse I like is in John 15, 15. It says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. But Jesus does with us. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. Notice that? Now you are my friends. So here's the bottom line, the most important point. If your relationship with God is not based on friendship, then you have no relationship at all. A good measure of your love for God is how much you love his word and how much you spend time reading it or listening to it for yourselves. And I might add, you can also pick up on how much love you have for other people. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's like our spiritual barometer or temperature gauge. Now, why is this so important? Well, Friendship is based on communication, and it's through the Bible, God's love letter to us, that he speaks to us. If we are God's friend, then we want to listen to what he says to us. Now, we come to the most important part. How to fix a heart that is strayed, a heart that has gone cold. How to remove those idols that have taken first place. Now, it could be, again, it could be sin, it could be drugs, alcohol, sex. Or it could be family, it could be work, it could be sport, it could be Netflix, it could be movies, it could be games, it could be friends, and again, even church activities. So, hands up, who has ever left their first love before? Now, I think all of us do, and probably on a fairly regular occasion. Now, often we just wander a bit, 
And then we realize, hang on, I'm starting to lose my zeal here. And we repent and we come back. Sometimes we wander a long way off. But guess what? It's still the same. We repent and we come back. And so God has given us his little formula here to show us how to come back. What do we do if we have strayed, if we have left our first love, even just a little bit? This is a progressive thing. So Revelation 2 verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And for the Amplified Version, I like this. Remember then from what heights you have fallen. Repent, change the inner man to meet God's will and do the works you did previously when you first knew the Lord. So it's a three-step process. The first one is remember. The second one is repent. And the third one is do again what you did at first and do the works that you did previously. So remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, the first step in restoration for the Ephesian church is for them to remember. They need to remember from where you have fallen. So what does this mean? Well, I think it means they need to remember where they used to be in their love for the Lord and for one another. I used to really love that person, but now he really grates on me. Something's changed. And a good example to help us understand this is the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that? Parable of the prodigal son? The son asks his father for his inheritance. He then leaves home and travels to a distant land where he wastes his money on alcohol and parties, etc. When his money runs out, he gets working for a pig farmer, and now he's so hungry that he wants to eat pig food. Disgusting. What happened next? It says he came to his senses, he remembered. Yeah? So we're going to use this as an example, this the prodigal son story, as an example of remember, return, and do the first works. So here's Luke 15, 17 to 24. So the first one is remember. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. So we realize that we're really missing God. Second thing is repent, change of direction. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So what's happened to him? He's humbled himself. So repentance is a lot to do with humility. I was wrong. I am sorry. I'm going to humble myself. And he's saying, I'm no longer worthy. I have sinned against you. And then, return. Do the first works. And he arose and came to his father. Where was he the happiest? At home. So he goes back to the first works. He goes back home to be with his father. And what does his father do? When he's a great way off, his father sees him, is filled with compassion, falls on him, kisses him, hugs him, and the son says to him, to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now what's God's response? But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, 
and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So there's a celebration that goes on when we repent. Not just when we first get saved, but I believe that God is, yes, he's back. He was starting to drift away, but he's back. So let's just focus in on what repent means. It means to change your direction, to go a different way. Someone said that repentance is a change of mind and heart that leads to a change of behavior. So it starts from the inside and works its way out. We turn away from sin and to God. When we agree with God that his ways are right, and we choose to follow and obey him. And do the first works. This means that we must go back to the basics, to the very first things we did when we fell in love with Jesus. These are the things that Christians need to do for the rest of our lives. We'll never outgrow these things or cease to need them. So what are the first works for us? Read your Bible. Pray. Fellowship. There's one more. Evangelism. So the first works. Remember how you used to spend time in his word. Remember how you used to pray. Remember the joy in getting together with other Christians. Remember how excited you were about telling others about Jesus. I'm going to quote from David Guzik here. We might say that Satan does a masterful job in creating a sense of general dissatisfaction with these first works. Christians will run after almost every new strange method or program for growth and stability. Our shortened attention spans make us easily bored with the truest excitement. Sometimes we will do almost anything except the first works. So if you realize your love for God is growing cold or has grown cold, then you just need to get back to the basics. You've got to decide, this is going to be my first priority. You need to make time to read the word, pray, fellowship, and evangelize. And back to verse 5. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So what does this mean for the church? Well, he's going to take the lampstand, his presence, away from them. He's going to remove their light and his presence. And now they could continue as an organization, but no longer as a true church of Jesus Christ. And there's a word called Ichabod, and it means the glory has departed. So we can be like this in our lives too. We can be living, going through the motions in our life, but the glory, the presence of God has departed from us. Not that God has left us, we always have the Holy Spirit in us, but the overflow of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the fragrance that Paul talks about in Corinthians is we don't have that fragrance anymore. We don't have the fruit of the Spirit flowing up from us. So you will be someone who calls themselves a Christian but doesn't love as a Christian. It doesn't mean we're not living as a Christian, but we're not loving as a Christian. There's a big difference. We may still be good people, but we will just be another moral person, just like the Mr. Good Atheist down the road. You know, what's the difference? He gives to charity, so do we. He's nice to his wife, so are we. So what? Now, I might stop there. We'll finish verse 6 and 7 next week. So, if our hearts 
go astray, if we get distracted, if we choose something, is a very subtle thing. It is a choice, but it's not a choice we make consciously sometimes. Something is more important to us, and we do that instead of doing what God wants us to do. Then we're losing our first love. Something else is now more important than God in our lives. What do we do? Well, we repent. We change our direction. We change what we're going to make number one in our lives, and that is a conscious decision that we make. Remember, love is a choice. I choose to love God. And repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. And the first works, we come back to do the first works, which are spending time in the Word, praying, and the joy in getting together with other Christians and getting excited about telling other people about Jesus. If you're doing those things, then it kind of builds and it feeds itself. It's like a thing where you just want to do it more and more and more. But if you stop, it quickly goes down, down, down. And I just want to think about Abraham to finish. Abraham went to the promised land and there was a famine and he went to Egypt and he did some silly things. He basically disowned his wife and stuff like that. And he was rebuked by the king there. But when he came back, he had built an altar in the land when he first got there and he worshipped God. He was close to God. God revealed himself to Abraham at that altar. And when Abraham left Egypt, he went back to that altar and worshipped again. So he came back to his first love, basically. So it's a picture of what God wants us to do as well. Come back to that place where we worship him and put him first. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you've given us such clear directions for how to live life. Lord, we're going to be muddled up sometimes, and the reason is because we battle our sinful nature. We are easily deceived. Our heart is deceptive. But Lord, help us to be aware of the things that will distract us. Help us to be aware of the things that will cause us to stray from you, to not put anything ahead of you, and to have clear boundaries in our lives and say, no, these are the boundaries. These are the things I need to do. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because my relationship with God is too important. Help us all to put you first in our lives and to examine ourselves and see if there's anything that's distracting us. If our affections are not purely focused on you, but we have other things. So yeah, really work in our hearts, Lord. Examine us, try us and see if there's any evil way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.